Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. And as we do that this morning, my prayer is that you would find us teachable, that you would uh, find our hearts amenable to adjustment and learning, and that you would uh, create in us the desire to look more like Jesus when we're done than we did when we started. We pray in his name, that name above all names. Amen. So here's a test for you. Pastor Laura read all those verses from the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. It got to feel a little bit like the Hallelujah Chorus there after a while with the kind of repetition. What was the theme of those verses that Pastor Laura read to you? Grace and peace. Outstanding. Well done. You all get an A plus for the morning. When I was a wee laddie, my folks took us to the drive-in movie um, so there were three boys in the back seat, my mom and dad in the front. It was this giant car. I don't even remember what it was. You know the kind, the giant boats that people used to drive around in back in the day. And uh, we were sitting in the back, and my folks took us to see uh, my very first James Bond movie at the drive-in. In fact, it was a double feature. The movies were Goldfinger and Dr. No. 007. There's a new James Bond movie coming out in November. It's called No Time to Die. And of course, James Bond is supposed to be a secret agent, right? 007? Of course, he's not very secret. Like, everybody knows who he is, except the bad guys in the latest movie. You gotta wonder if the bad guys ever go to the movies, or watch movies, or stream movies, or not, because they're the only ones that don't know that, hey, this is James Bond, he's 007, he's he's gonna kick your butt if you don't watch out what's going on. Well, as exciting as uh, James Bond movies are and as much fun as they are for me to watch, um, you and I, we are called to be God's agents and not very secret agents either. And the opening lines in in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians help us to see the kind of agents that you and I are called to be. God's people are called to emulate Paul and be agents of grace and peace. So Philippians chapter 1 Verses 1 and 2. Now, before I read these verses to you, and you heard the pattern that uh, Pastor Laura read to you from all those different letters of Paul, that was kind of the standard pattern of greeting in the ancient world when the Apostle Paul was writing these letters. So you would identify yourself as the writer, you would identify those to whom the letter was written, and then you would give some word of greeting. But of course, what the Apostle Paul did, which is what he did with everything, he infused it with the power of the message of Christ. So here, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there we hear it again, grace and peace. Now, I think you and I need to understand the setting for this letter because the Philippian letter has been called the joy letter because about 14 times different versions of the word joy appear in that letter. But the Apostle Paul writes this letter when he is locked up. He's under house arrest. He is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. And in addition to being locked up and chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, he has to provide for the house and for the guard financially. So here's the point of that. The Apostle Paul does not wait for the moment of comfort to be an agent of grace and peace. And neither should we. 
You know, if we wait for things to be perfect in our lives before we act on God's call to minister to others, we're never going to get around to it because things are never going to be perfect in this world. When uh, Pastor Laura and I first moved to Emporia, we had to replace our couch. And so we went down to the furniture store on 6th um, Avenue down there and we bought this really, really comfort recliner couch. Now this thing is space age, right? It's cushioned, and you have this remote control where you can elevate your feet, and you can lay back, and you can have head support and lumbar support. I mean, this thing is really, really, really comfortable. And once I get in this thing, I don't want to move all that much. And so Pastor and Laura and I started this game where we would wait for the other person to get up. And then we'd say, while you're up, Would you get me whatever we happen to want to get? Well, the kingdom of God is not us remaining comfortable and expecting other people to minister while they're up. How do we do that? We do that, I think Paul points us to this in today's passage, this letter, this very short pericope from this passage. How do we do that? We do that by the constant realization of the grace of God at work in our lives. The Apostle Paul talks about grace a lot. In the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3, he talks about how deep it is and how wide it is and how great the love of God is for us in Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, he talks about grace as as an abundant provision. And it's really only in the perspective of God's grace that we can be agents of grace. Otherwise, we're doing it out of a sense of duty or performance. And after a while, frankly, that gets old. But if we understand this, that we need to be graceful, that is, full of grace, we can indeed be agents of grace. So, again, James Bond, 007, not very secret agent. You and I, we're called to be agents 002. Agents of grace and peace. Agents of grace. Now, here's the thing about grace. If you go to define it, the definition that we usually settle on is that grace is unmerited favor. In other words, getting what we do not deserve. We are recipients of God's favor in his gift of Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The verse does not say, John chapter 3, 16, does not say, God so loved the world that if you work your butts off, you can enjoy eternity in heaven. He gave. Grace is a, is a, is a gift, and we are recipients of this grace, and we're called to pass it on. So the question is, of course, I think, how? How do we pass on grace? I think one arena most desperately in need of grace is how we speak. Our culture has a problem. Well, our culture has many problems. But one in particular is that our culture has become a culture of critique. A culture of opinion polls. To such an extent that we don't get national leaders anymore. We get people who are very, very good at reading the polls and telling people what they think they want to hear. Many, many years ago, 
I've read about this in history books. I don't have any personal experience with this, but many, many years ago, you remember, right? O.J. Simpson was on trial. Remember that? And he, his trials was the trial that spawned an entire industry of legal critics on TV. And that hasn't gone away. The problem is that culture of critique can sometimes invade the fellowship, invade the church. And if we're not on guard, it can invade our minds and our hearts. It's a culture that adopts a mindset of criticism and complaint. complaint. It's a culture that first seeks to point out what was wrong. I read about, in, in my history book, a very famous president called Ronald Reagan. And uh, Ronald Reagan had something that I really, really miss in politicians. He had a sense of humor. And he, before he became an actor, before he became president, he was a radio commentator, a radio sportscaster. And so he would listen to the feed as it came in or watch a game and he'd, he'd talk about it and he'd just broadcast. And what he did is what we call now play-by-play reporting. One day, the feed that he was listening to in order to report the game, the feed went down. And so for about two and a half innings, he kind of made things up as they went along before he could catch up to the game. And he did it so well that it was a seamless commentary from when the, his uh, feed went out to when it came back in. But that was back in the day before color commentary, right? Because sportscasters originally, they just told you what was happening on the field. But then they added color commentary. The critique of the plays and the moves and the players. Many, many times these critiques are coming from people who have never played the game. And yet they are experts in telling people who are actually playing the game how they messed up. I think, sadly, too many of us really easily fall into this trap of color commentary. It's really, really easy to do. To stand by and point out what other people are doing wrong. And here's a thing, a sad thing, a sad characteristic of the people of God from the very beginning is that we were, they were, color commentators. Only the Bible has another word for it. The Bible calls it grumbling. Exodus chapter 17, verse 3. Numbers chapter 14, verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27. Psalm 126, verse 25. The Gospel of John chapter 6. Gospel of John chapter 4. Grumbling. What is the primary characteristic of a grumbler? In the little letter to Jude, Paul says this, that grumblers are fault finders. They follow their own desires. They boast about themselves. They flatter other people for their own advantage. And of course, the scriptures are clear about this whole idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, do not grumble. James chapter 5, verse 9, don't grumble against each other. Crystal clear. But if you're anything like me, I often have the most trouble with the stuff that's crystal clear. I can remember when I was pastoring in Woodland Park, Colorado, 
There was a woman in the church, I'm going to call her Mrs. X. Her trademark was grumbling, to the point where I observed this on several occasions. We had a very large entryway, a very large kind of uh, foyer area. And if, she, if there were people in there, and she walked in, people scattered, just like that. Of course, I'm the pastor. I've got to stay there. <laughs> so she came to me one day, asked if she could come to our church council meeting. This was the church's early days. I mean, we're a brand new church plant. We're just in our new building. It was early days. We're still getting our legs, our sea legs, kind of our feet on the ground, pick your metaphor. And she said, can I come talk to the church council? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. In my head, no, no, you can't come, no. I censored what was in my head and my out loud voice said, Okay, of course you can. And so the next church council meeting, she came and she lambasted us. She said, we weren't doing enough to minister to children. The kids weren't prominent. And I said, man, Mrs. X, I didn't really call her Mrs. X, but you get my point, right? Mrs. X, listen, you got to give us a little time. We've got to raise up some leaders here. It's going to take a little time to do that. And twice I had this thing pop through my brain because she, you know, left the church and went to bless another fellowship somewhere else. We had a party. But twice after she left, once we, we started an Awana program, which is a kids program on Sunday nights. We had over 200 kids every Sunday night. And those kids, when they got together, the program consists in part of this extravaganza of worship. And those kids are jumping up and down and screaming and clapping and singing songs. And I, this thought went through my head, man, I wish Mrs. X had stayed around to see this. And then later on, in that same year, we had a kids' Christmas program, which was a bit of a disaster, as they, are ten, as they tend to be. Because uh, um, uh, Christmas programs, I like to describe as like, we went to see our granddaughter Harper in a dance recital. And I said to Pastor Laura later, I said, I'm really impressed with that teacher's ability to get all those kids to do something completely different all at the same time. <laughs> and so we're watching this Christmas program and the kids are doing this and, the, and it was a joyful celebration of the birth of Jesus. And I, in my brain I went, man, if only Mrs. X had stayed around to see this. Another problem with a grumbling kind of critical spirit is that we teach our kids to be critics. When I was in the military in Wyoming, my boss, I was a lieutenant at the time, my boss was a lieutenant colonel, and he came to me one day and he said, Howard, how would you like to help me out by umpiring some Little League baseball games? And I said, yeah, sir, I don't really, you know, he said, you're not hearing me very well. <laughs> so the next Saturday, I'm out there with my gear on, and umpiring, and I made the mistake of volunteering to be behind the plate for my first appearance. And you know what's going to happen, right? I'm going to make a call based on what I see, and people in the stands are going to critique me about it because somehow they have a better vantage point than I do, even though I'm standing right behind the plate. 
And here's what I noticed. With the little, little kids, it was usually just the parents that were grumbling and barking and complaining. The kids were just happy to be there playing ball. And then the next level up, we called them the majors in that place in that time, the next level up, suddenly I noticed there began to be this mixture. The parents are barking and complaining, yes. But the kids are now suddenly becoming vocal in their critiques of the guy behind the plate with the view of the pitch that they don't have. And then by the time it got to Babe Ruth ball, these are high school kids, the parents were essentially sitting there saying nothing. It's the kids who were complaining about each and every call. What happened? The kids caught what they saw from mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, that it was okay to chastise the poor guy behind the plate because the spirit of grumbling and critique is really, really contagious. The Bible says we don't get to be critics. You know, in the book of Revelation, some people, all they can do is grumble. And in the book of Revelation, uh, the Apostle John, he has this vision of what the new heaven and the new earth is going to look like, the new Jerusalem, what it's going to look like. And, it, and it's, he's described it as having streets of gold. And I know some of these critics are going to show up and say, well, man, couldn't you get platinum for these streets? <laughs> the Bible says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, that our conversations... Believers in Jesus' conversations are to be always full of grace. I used to use a chapstick, but now it's becoming Blistex season again. I always have one of these in my pocket. If I don't, I feel like I'm not really dressed. Really, in fact, I have one in my pocket all year long. And um, I used to use chapstick, by the way. But um, I had to switch from chapstick to Blistex because chapstick has beeswax in it. And when I kissed my wife, who's allergic, a little puffy and red there, so I had to decide, chapstick or kissing Laura? Chapstick kissing Laura? All right, I'll pick kissing Laura. Lip balm, though. The Bible says Christians are supposed to have a different kind of lip balm. Psalm 45, verse 2 says this. Your lips have been anointed with grace. Can people say that about us? Or do they run for cover when they see us coming because they know our speech, speech stinks? Another way we can be agents of grace is responding readily to needs that we see. Sometimes as Christians, we have this little Christian cop-out thing we do. I'll pray about that. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Same military tour in Wyoming, I was partnered up with a guy named Harry Mathis. He was instrumental in leading me to the Lord. And we would have to take these rides out to remote, remote to missile silos and uh, do some things out there. 
that I can't tell you about, otherwise I'd have to kill you. And uh, so we'd be in these uh, Air Force trucks going down the highway in Wyoming, you know, cars just zooming by or whatever. But um, we saw on the other side of the highway one day, a guy laying in the, in the shoulder of the road. He was just laying there. So I'm thinking to myself, well, I should pray for that guy as we keep zooming down the road. Harry, my friend, says, um, we're going to make a little detour here. So we had to go 10 miles up the highway before we could turn around. We, did, we turned around and we came back. The guy's still laying there. And we walk up to him, and I, we're kind of kneeling down to him. I'm kind of standing back, because, you know, you don't know what's going on with a guy lying on the side of the road. My friend Harry, filled with grace, as he always was, he just walked up and touched the guy. And he had been debilitated by something. I'm still to this day not sure what. And I went back to the truck. I called the local sheriff's office to get some help for the guy. But this is what an agent of grace looks like. It looks like my friend Harry, who walks up and touches the person who's in trouble in the time of need. Agents of grace. But it's 002, not 001. Agents of grace and agents of peace. Real peace. Biblical peace. Which means reconciliation with God through Christ. Listen, all the world can really say in terms of peace is break up the fight. That's really all the world can do. Get between the opposing sides and say, say, break up the fight. But biblical agents of peace, we offer real peace. Reconciliation with God through Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, we have the ministry and message of reconciliation. Inviting people to know Jesus. You want to do something really worthwhile? I mean, really, really worthwhile. The kind of stuff that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck worthwhile? Build a relationship with somebody. And along the way, take those spirit-led opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus. It's intoxicating. Agents of grace and agents of peace. Well, I know I say the phrase a lot when I was in the military, sorry. But regularly, the IG shows up, the Inspector General. When I was first in the military, I was in the Strategic Air Command, and the IG would show up like this. They would swoop in unannounced on a, on a, on a Boeing 707 modified, it was a tanker, a KC-135, They'd swoop in, they would land, and they would all pile out of the airplane. They would get into trucks they, they prearranged to have there secretly somehow, and they would show up in your office with their name tags that had their name on it, but the words Inspector General underneath. No knock, no notice, no knock, warrants, no knock, whatever. And their job was to look for deficiencies in trouble. That was their job. A guy I really, really admired got fired because a person eight levels below him did not properly calibrate a torque wrench. Now, the torque wrench was used for a significant weapon system and it was very important, but eight levels up, the boss gets fired because the IG showed up. 
I think some of us sometimes think that our call from God is to be agents of criticism and complaint. Our call is not to be the IG. Our call is to be the IGP. Instruments of grace and peace. So when folks think about you, do they think you're an instrument of grace and peace? Or do they mostly run for cover because you are mostly the inspector general? Think about it. Think about this time period that we are in, this pandemic. More than nearly anything else, in addition to a solid national system of delivering health care, which apparently we don't have, in addition to that, what people really need is encouragement. Encouragement. And of all the people on the planet, shouldn't it be the case that you and I, disciples of Jesus, can fill that encouragement gap by being agents of grace and peace. Next time you hear the James Bond theme song, don't think 007, think 002. Pray with me. Father, we thank you today.